As was mentioned at the outset of the announcements this evening, it's always a delight and a privilege to come together and to not only feel that blessing for ourselves as members of the Pippin congregation, but also for visitors who've come our way, and we're always delighted to have visitors with us. We truly trust that the service will be an edifying matter as it is in step with that which is the proclamation of the Holy Word of God. It is true that we here at the Pippin Congregation for this calendar year of 2014 have chosen to read through the totality of the book of God. And in so doing, that brings us this evening to the comments I've placed at the top of this slide. At this point, as of the end of the day today, some 913 chapters having been read, as you can see, that is almost 77% of the fullness of the Bible. Currently, the book of John in the New Testament, it is from that book that we drew our lesson this morning. But this evening, the lessons, the readings of this past week were taken from some of the prophets of the Old Testament, and in particular was the book of Hosea. Tonight's lesson will be extracted from the book of Hosea. It is the first of the minor prophets. It is such that a tantalizing book with an interesting feature, an interesting bent to it, if you will. But as always, it is a part of the inspired Word of God. I would invite us tonight to take a journey through the book of Hosea, in particular to cast a spotlight on some of those features touching the matters of the day of Hosea and using them to really strike a strong chord with you and me as we think about the modern era and even the current day in which we live. You'll notice on that particular slide at the bottom of it are some statements about much of what you and I discover as we read through and study the Old Testament. We know that there are 17 books of prophecy and there are several books like Samuel and Chronicles and Kings that remind us of the historical framework of that Old Testament period. But as we read through all of them, we begin to emphasize a strong element as it relates to those prophets that God commissioned, those prophets that He called, and those prophets to whom He gave a very strong and powerful message to be delivered to any number of peoples of the day. In fact, as we turn the slide over to the next one, and we begin to look more carefully at the book of Hosea, you'll notice it begins like this. Among those prophets and among those particular kingdoms that you and I discover and find, we notice that God commissioned some prophets to preach to that which was the northern kingdom of Israel. There were some prophets that God specifically told, you go and preach and proclaim to the southern kingdom of Judah. There were other prophets that God commissioned to preach to other nations like the Assyrians, namely the book of Jonah. Jonah was commissioned to go and preach to Nineveh, but he wasn't too excited at first to go. In light of all of those things, let's cast a spotlight on Hosea. Hosea was especially commissioned by God to proclaim a very powerfully strong message to the northern kingdom of Israel. You might recall with me that after the reign of Solomon, the united kingdom of Israel suffered a, a split, a division if you please. That northern kingdom henceforth came to be known as Israel. And it was to that group of people, by and large those ten tribes, that God commissioned Hosea to carry forth to them a rather amazing message. Amazing on the one hand for the clarity of it, on the other hand due to its poetic nature 
and maybe on a third hand due to the nature of the destruction found within it. It might well be in light of all of that. Let's paint what really is a rather sorely sad picture. The first king that Israel ever had, that northern kingdom I mean, was Jeroboam. You and I remember that again following the reign of Solomon, or rather the reign of Solomon, his son Rehoboam came to the throne, but due to his foolishness and his stubbornness, the kingdom was split and one by one, all the kings that they ever had were sinful. They were bad. Many of them encouraged idolatry in very great matters. Many of them, in fact, encouraged livelihoods separate and apart from any pursuit and seeking of God. One by one, those kings passed from Jeroboam to Nadab and on down the line it goes. By the time we reach the time of Hosea, they are in their 13th king, or really the 14th one in number, and all of them had been bad. All of them had been encouraging of ways apart from God. I would ask you to perhaps highlight, interestingly, we are now roughly 150 years after the division following again the reign of Solomon. Fifteen decades roughly have passed, and we find again great deals of sinfulness. It was true, admittedly, that the northern kingdom, at least for the time being, did have some material prosperity, but that was overshadowed by the sinfulness, the moral corruptness. It was a degraded society. I would ask you to also notice, God had been faithful to Israel. Throughout the days from really the law of Moses onward, God had promised to all of His people a strong element of His security and protection so long as they would be faithful to Him, so long as they would turn their attention to Him and never rebel against Him, so long as they would put first in their priority list the pursuit and the seeking of that which was the way of God. God had always done that which was true to His command and His promise to them. But I would ask you to notice at the bottom of that slide, the same could not be said for Israel in terms of her relationship to God. She had not been faithful to Him. Religiously, she in fact had engaged in any number of things that God condemned. As a society, she had chosen to pursue that which was far removed from the faithfulness of God. So on the one hand, we have a picture of a faithful God and an unfaithful Israel. God chose in the book of Hosea to illustrate that circumstance in a very memorable way a way that I'm sure each of us will find extremely interesting. I'm sure the people of that day did too. It all surrounds the characteristic of Hosea. The prophet himself, this is not a made-up myth, nor is it an, an, merely an allegory. This is what God commanded Hosea the prophet to do. I would invite you to read the first three verses of Hosea chapter 1. The prophecy begins very strongly. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord." 
So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. The first two verses bring the circumstance before us. During the long set of reigns of those kings of Judah, and also this reign of King Jeroboam of Israel, we find that God gave the commission to his prophet Hosea. Among the things that Hosea was to do was not just to preach. His life was to be an open lesson in regard to the matters he was proclaiming. Hosea proclaimed a message of a faithful God, but he also proclaimed a message very much direct and straightforward of an unfaithful people who had not kept their promise to him. The illustration and the demonstration of that truth brings us to understand the commandment of verse number 2. God gave order of Hosea to marry a woman, to in fact find a wife, to find a woman, I should say, and marry her. At this point, you notice the language. Three times a particular word appears in verse number 2. A wife of whoredoms, children of whoredoms, committed great whoredoms, that is to say the land had done so. God commissioned Hosea to marry a woman. Ultimately, down the stream of time, she was not to be faithful to him. She was an unfaithful bride, an unfaithful wife. Your stomach and mind turns at the thought of such a thing. The pristine beauty that should characterize marriage, the amazing unison, unity, and oneness of flesh that should be descriptive of that. And yet, we know that around us in our world, there are those men, those women who are not faithful to their marriages. Hosea the prophet was doomed to suffer a similar fate. You'll notice as we come to the top of this slide, we learn the name of the woman that he married. Her name was Gomer. When you and I give thought to Gomer, we are left in position to understand the circumstance in which Hosea now found himself. It would appear that the wording of chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 was a description of a state that would come to exist and would come to be. It would seem that at the time that he married Gomer, she was faithful. She was a fine lady, a fine woman, but within her heart were the seeds of that which would ultimately lead to unfaithfulness. It's almost as if the language of verses 2 and 3 was written as a prelude of what one day would be the case concerning her. But you notice that the two were married, Hosea and Gomer. And now, as you and I are well apprised of considering, we notice that in that relationship, Hosea was the husband, Gomer was the wife. We now would anticipate a faithfulness on the part of each one of them to the other one. And that should be that which was the way it ought to be. But by the same token, Israel should have been faithful to God, but she wasn't. God was faithful to her. No wonder some of these comments quickly come before us. The story will consume the first three chapters of this book. For now, you'll immediately notice that Gomer became pregnant, carrying Hosea's child. As this child was brought forth, we notice it was a boy, and his name was Jezreel. Interestingly enough, you can well tell that all of those names, as often was true in the Old Testament era, those names carried a significance, a meaning, a matter of identification. The word Jezreel literally means God soweth. 
It would appear from the nature of that which surrounded the naming of the boy that the next comment is certainly in order. Jehu was one of the previous kings of that northern kingdom of Israel, and he was known for his wickedness, known, in fact, for shedding innocent blood in the land, and known for encouraging lawlessness. May we say that God did not look kindly upon Jehu, nor what he stood for, so much so that, in fact, God said, I will avenge the evils and the atrocities of King Jehu. And notice the name of Hosea's oldest son, the name Jezreel carries with it the thought that God was going to exterminate the influence and the forcefulness that attached to the evil that Jehu had done. God soweth. Can't we use that as an opportune time to reflect on the fact there is coming a day of judgment when God will avenge all of those that choose not to obey Him. All of those that live in infamy with respect to His commandment, our God is a God that will bring vengeance on that moment. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There will be a time then when purity and perfectness in judgment will ring forward and on that occasion for the disobedient, vengeance shall be the last word. You'll notice that that wasn't the only child, though, born to Gomer and Hosea. You'll notice that next was a daughter. You might notice the interesting name that she was given. The specifics are found in verse number 6. I would invite you to read it of verse number 1. And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto her, Call her name Lohurama, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. Doesn't that name speak volumes? As you can well tell and what you would have expected, that name literally means no mercy. Here was a child born given a name indicative of the fact that the days of God's mercy were running thin and Israel had run to the end of the opportunities that she was going to be given. As you can well tell, the nature of that judgment from God in relation to the name of that daughter maybe brings us to the third child. This one too had a very significantly given name. You'll find it in verse number 8 of, again, Hosea chapter 1. Now when she had weaned Lohurama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said, God called his name Loamai, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. You would have thought that would have been a stunning message. To name a child a word which means not my people. And yet that was the name given to the third of Hosea's children not my people. Again, it wasn't indicative of the child's relationship to Hosea. It was indicative of Israel's relationship to God. Their behavior, their society, their conduct, their lawlessness, their sinfulness, their rebellion against Him now brought God to acclaim them as not my people. What a staggering message. The nature of those three children now brings us to chapter number 2 in which the plot thickens even further. As if the names of these three children weren't significant enough. 
now we find that Hosea became unfaithful, or rather, Gomer became unfaithful to Hosea. She became a prostitute. Can you imagine your wife, your dearly beloved wife, the one, again, whom you have given your name to, gentlemen, and the one whom you love with all of your being, and she chooses of her own volition and her own course to be unfaithful to you and chooses to go and to prostitute her body in harlotry. Gomer did this. You can imagine the places in which she now found herself, the kind of men with whom she now was, the kind of conduct and behavior descriptive of her. But that did not deter Hosea from loving her. It didn't cause him in the slightest to not wish her again to be back with him. That's how much he cared for her. Doesn't that speak volumes about the love that can exist in a marriage? Despite what she had done, Hosea was ready to welcome her home, was ready to in fact take her back. All of that we find to lead us to wonder what became of their marriage. What happened to Gomer and what happened to Hosea? Thankfully, the book informs us. Thankfully, it shares with us that which took place. It is so touching, I would invite you to read it as we find it in Hosea chapter 3. That is a rather brief chapter. It is the case that we need not read all of it, but let's begin in verse number 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. Can you hear what God said? Here was a woman having intercourse, having the matters of love with another man. Yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. At this point, Hosea has received a message, a message in which it would entirely be in his desire to bring his wife Gomer back. What did he do? Verse 2 tells us, so I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, and for an homer of barley, and an half homer of barley. Can you imagine it? Here his wife had been unfaithful to him, and he had to go and purchase her back. Buy her like he was in fact engaging in the very attitude of encouraging the prostitution, but the only way to get her back was to purchase her. And that he did. Fifteen pieces of silver half the price of a common slave in the Hebrew era. You'll notice the other part was made up for with a homer, or rather a homer and a half of barley. That's what Gomer cost him to go and buy his unfaithful wife back. As you and I consider the shocking character of this, which now is representative of the nature of Israel's relationship to God, you and I can only observe what Hosea now tells his wife in verse 3. Hosea 3, verse 3, And I said unto her, What would you and I say to our unfaithful wife if we had to go and bring her back from a life like that? Here's what Hosea told her. Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Hosea reminded her, now I'm going to love and be faithful to you, and I expect and demand that you now shall be that to me. Shouldn't that be expected that a faithful husband could say that to his wife? Shouldn't you expect a faithful wife to be able to say that to a man that had been unfaithful to her? 
That kind of wording and language again reminds us the entire backdrop of this was Israel's relationship to God. God had been faithful to Israel. He loved her, provided for her, cared for her, gave her security and provision, gave her a land flowing with milk and honey, instilled within that nation the providence and character of ultimately bringing into the world the Messiah. But you and I well know, you and I well know that she had looked a gift horse in the mouth. She had not recognized that God gave her that land. She had failed to appreciate the fact that within her was the very legacy and lineage extended from Abraham onward. She had failed to appreciate the fact that she was to be a blessing to the nations of the world with regard to godliness. And so it was at the northern kingdom, that kingdom of Israel, with all those kings and all the foolish and sinful choices of the people, they, of course, were a nation of infamy. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide, it prepares us really for that which will be the next one. We now find, beginning in chapter 4 of this book and continuing basically through several chapters, there was one description and one description after another about what was to come to pass relative to the northern kingdom. Along the line, I would now invite you to just notice a few passages as we proceed through the book. First of all, chapter 4, verse 6, a major matter in terms of her problems. That verse simply says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. One of the main reasons why Israel found herself in this predicament was because she had a lack of knowledge. Over the course of the centuries, over the course of the periods of time, she had allowed her knowledge to lapse from her she no longer had a working, acute knowledge of the law of Moses. She'd stumbled because of a lack of it. God said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We might by, by and large be quick to say that will ultimately always be the case for the destruction of God's people. The church of today veers away from the path of truth because my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. When there is not a working knowledge of this book, you and I, will be, we will believe anything. Anybody can come and influence us and lead us along pathways of untruth because we don't know enough to compare it to a standard. And we don't know enough to appreciate that which is the truth which God has declared. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It is interesting that later in Hosea 13... Verses 9 and 10, God now makes this declaration concerning them. Thou, Israel, hast destroyed thyself. So putting those two together, they had not studied, they had not availed themselves of the wordings of the prophets. They hadn't appreciated what was proclaimed on the Sabbaths. It had gone in one ear and out the other, hadn't it? You and I today have a keen understanding that Bible study periods and worship periods are extraordinarily significant. It is there where the greatest book of all is expounded. It's there where the only truth to which you and I have any eternal exposure is presented. And how quick we should be to avail ourselves of those lovely opportunities. My people, God said, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
Had they known what God said and appreciated it, they would have known the cultural evils of the day. They would have known to throw out those kings that had been put in office. And they would have brought in those that were better, more godly, more honorable. Interesting set of lessons concerning that kind of thing, isn't it? Can't you and I recall other Old Testament examples when God's people made their own choices to follow pursuits of evil and falsehood? What about that which Joshua proclaimed before he died? We have a monumental statement concerning Joshua in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and following. It is stated there that they stayed faithful to God all the days of Joshua. But after Joshua died, and after that generation with him died, there arose a generation, it says, who did not know and did not appreciate. And there's where Israel's problems, of course, in that era developed. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We might ask, then, how much knowledge do we have of the sacred text? If there were to come an era of time when maybe there were those in high places here that commanded this not to be studied, like it is currently in certain areas in China, for example, would you and I have enough knowledge, would we have enough commitment that we could carry out the proper worshipful services and the plan of salvation and all that goes with it? I trust we can. We need a thorough equipped knowledge with a thus saith the Lord of that which the God of heaven has set forth and proclaimed. May we never be guilty of my people destroyed for lack of knowledge. Paul told Timothy, did he not, in 1 Timothy 4 verses 12 through 16, give diligence, give attention to the doctrine. Timothy wanted to be interested in the proclamation of the modern day matters, doctrine, that which is the setting forth of the Word of God. No wonder we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. This statement of chapter 4, verse 6, perhaps one of the sad but highlighted statements of the book. May I suggest a number of things can be readily listed as examples of their lack of knowledge. I would ask you to note these. Chapter 4, verses 7 and following, God described them as my people. They take a hunk of wood and cut out something and then fall down and worship it. Sounds astounding to you and me, doesn't it? They should in history have known about a God that's living and active and who can part the Red Sea. And who can make it dew on the ground and give them food six days a week for 40 years? They should have known about that God. The foolishness of carving something out and thinking that that is God. And yet, they did it. Look at another example in Hosea 13.9. Their own personal destruction of themselves by virtue of ignorance only leads us to notice in chapter 6 verse 7, God says, you've transgressed my covenant. The covenant that they agreed to, they now transgressed. That directly makes us think of marriage, doesn't it? The man and the woman enter into a covenant one with another. They, in fact, pronounce vows on the occasion of their marriage. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And we know the rest of it. In sickness and in health and all the others. Do you promise to be faithful to him and him alone? And she says, yes, I do. And he says the same thing with respect to her. They enter a covenant. 
Here, Israel had entered a covenant too, but she hadn't been faithful to her husband. Oh, the tragedy of it all. You'll notice that Hosea 8.14, God says, They forgot me. Can you imagine a wife forgetting her husband as long as she has a soundness of mind? And yet they had forgotten him. We do remember that Jeremiah somewhat later, chronologically, will say almost the same thing in Jeremiah 2.32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or her bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. They had forgotten God. Oh, today you and I can appreciate that when God is forgotten, when He is summarily pushed out of life and in fact thrown over into a corner and expect Him to stay there, that kind of family, person, or nation is only asking for great trouble and wrath. You'll also notice they were bent on backsliding. That's where their heart was. They weren't content just to serve God. Doesn't that sound like Gomer? She had a loving husband and three children, but that didn't satisfy her. She wanted to be a prostitute, a harlot. Here Israel had everything that God had given her, and that wasn't enough. She was bent on playing the harlot spiritually, and she did. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide, you think about the kings through which Israel suffered, and you also think with me about the result of what God then says in chapter 11, verse 8. It truly is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the book. It's bad enough to think about what Hosea suffered through with an unfaithful woman like Gomer. But listen to how God says, Oh, Israel, how I hate to give thee up. God hated what was going to have to happen to the people of Israel. They were about to go into Assyrian captivity, and it wasn't going to be long. In fact, it was looming on the horizon, even as Hosea thunderously preached to them. It was about to come. The war engine and the war machine of Assyria was raging in the north. Soon, they were going to overrun the northern kingdom. Off into captivity, they would go. We find an extended historical description of that in 2 Kings 17. And we find that when they were hauled off into captivity, they were separated and segregated. Some of them were sent to this place and some were sent to that one. A dispersed people. That's what they suffered. You can only imagine as you then come to the bottom of that slide. God promised them, I'm not going to forget your wickedness. They were under the impression, it seems, that God is so merciful and loving, He'll always forgive. Well, as long as we'll do His will, that's certainly a true statement. But His long-suffering character wears thin eventually. And we find the nation of Assyria did come. And they did come in strength. And they did come in power and in might. Not only might we say that, isn't it true that you and I can so readily apply some of these matters additionally to you and I and even to the church at large today? Knowledge of the Word of God is not an idle matter. In fact, ignorance of it is not a light thing. When you and I think about the days of the Old Testament and even the days of the New, did God anticipate His people to have a rather thorough knowledge you and I can ask ourselves many kinds of questions. 
Can you and I list book, chapter, and verse corresponding to the Bible plan of salvation? We understand that's so important, for nobody can be saved apart from that. Do we know that enough to share it so quickly, deficiently? What about the items of acceptable worship to God? Can I quickly list book, chapter, and verse where those are found? What about the features concerning attributes, say, of physical husbands and wives and marriages? If someone at work were to say, I'm having trouble, could you share something with me? Could we quickly open to Ephesians 5? Could we at least share with them and ask them some matters that could be very monumentally useful? That idleness that can be attached to that leads us to note these very descriptive things. I mentioned at the outset of the lesson that Hosea, among the minor prophets, I feel sure is the most graphic in terms of his ability to use language. Hosea could describe things in a way that's so memorable. Look at some of the ways that Israel was described in this book. Chapter 7, verse 8. A cake not turned. All of us have had enough experience with cakes. If you put a cake in the oven and it's supposed to be you no know, turned over, what happens if you don't flip it or turn it? It's burnt on one side and raw on the other one. It's not fit for anything. God said, my people are like that. Burnt on one side and raw on the other one. None of us could eat anything like that. It's inedible. These individuals, this northern kingdom of Israel, was completely unuseful in the halls of God's righteousness. That's a tragedy. Not only that, notice they're a silly dove without a heart. Also, chapter 7, verse 11. A silly dove, a bird that flits about, doesn't know what it wants, where to land, what to seek for. That's a description. In fact, as we study in Hosea, we find there were times they'd pursue this God for a while and times they'd pursue that one for a while and then this one for a while. That's what God meant by a silly dove without a heart that flits about here and there. They weren't committed. They weren't dedicated. God wanted a dedicated people in every way devoted unto Him. Maybe one final one in that regard. Hosea 10, 1, an empty vine doesn't bring forth any fruit. That's what Israel was like. A nation in which God had invested so much and yet He got no returns from her at all. She had reached a point where she was completely useless in the exchange halls of God's marketplaces. Maybe in fairness to all of that, we do find these very strong and powerful admonitions, and we'll use them to close our lesson this evening. The lesson text was found amongst some of these verses that we'll now observe, but may I ask you to notice chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to the strength of Hosea's language. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He hath torn and He will heal us. He hath smitten and He will bind us up. Just like Hosea had to go after Gomer, she did at least come back with Hosea. We now notice that God told Hosea, you tell the people, come back to him. But the fact is, she never did. She would go into captivity. Notice also in chapter 12, verse 6, the language of that place. Turn thou to thy God, keep mercy, 
and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Finally, chapter 14, verse 1, closing chapter of the book. O Israel, return to the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Oh, how far she had fallen. I suspect in light of all of that, the lesson text now fits with such perfectness. Let's note again as we heard it read earlier. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Till He come and rain righteousness upon you. I would ask you to close the lesson by looking somewhat briefly, but nonetheless directly, at some of those features found in that little verse. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. They'd sown wickedness for a long time. It was time to sow that which corresponded to the truth of God. It was time for it to instill within their heart and bring forth what was noteworthy and good. He going on to say, reap in mercy. If they were to have sown in righteousness, they could have reaped God's mercy. He would have forgiven them. He would have forestalled their entrance into Assyria. After all, he did it for Nineveh. Why wouldn't he have done it for them? When Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, God said, Forty days and it will be overthrown. They repented and it was not overthrown in forty days. Can't you and I see that had they, Israel, had a heart not given to backsliding but given to faithful service, God would have forgiven them and protected them from Assyria. Isn't it true we also see this? Break up your fallow ground. Isn't it true that all of these matters you and I could easily attach to personal matters in your life and mine? You and I need to sow in righteousness, and if so, we'll reap mercy. What about break up your fallow ground? We know fallow ground is uncultivated ground. It's ground that hadn't been plowed and turned. Israel had some fallow ground. There were parts they weren't dedicating to God. They were holding it out for themselves, holding it out for some other purpose or use, and it needed to be directed to God. What about your life and mine? Are you and I holding out some fallow ground? Are there talents you have that you haven't allowed God to use? Are there particular energies and capabilities that you haven't devoted to Him yet? Break up your fallow ground. That goes for all of us. It's time to seek the Lord. In fact, for Israel, it's long past time to, to seek the Lord. They needed to have sought Him long before the dead. And today, for any of us, any one of us, you or me, it's time to seek the Lord. There's never a better time than to start now if you haven't been. It's time to seek the Lord. And the verse closes by saying, Till He come and rain righteousness upon you. He will open the bountiful doors of heaven and bless you and me so much if we will only be that which is His faithful servant. He promised that in Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34. It is with all that in mind that we've learned much about Hosea and much about Gomer along the way. Some of it's not been very pleasant. To close the lesson, may I ask you to comment briefly about the setting of the book, Hosea the prophet, his message to the northern kingdom and his unfaithful wife. In addition to that, we've learned about these direct messages concerning God's judgment upon Israel 
for such things as her ignorance, for such things as her waywardness with respect to him. And finally, we noted the admonition, return to the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord tonight as well. If you are an individual that's an alien sinner, one that has never been a member of the fold of God, but you know that you need to be, you're old enough to understand that there's sin in your life and that the God of heaven sent His Son to die for you. We would be excited to assist you this evening in your initial obedience to the commandments of the gospel. If we could do that tonight, you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and then submit to being baptized. We could assist you in that way tonight. If you have known that, but perhaps in some kind of way like Gomer, you've chosen to now be unfaithful. Though once faithful, you no longer are. Notice that the image given tonight, you are in ways much like Gomer. You are spiritually in adultery. You're unfaithful to the husband, the God of heaven who loved you. The Lord Jesus Christ, after all, as the bridegroom of the church, you hadn't been true to Him. Why not come back to your first love this evening? He will be happy with open arms to welcome you home. If we could pray for you or with you, we'd be delighted to do that. We would only ask you let us know in the way we can help and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.